You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderlin, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. Hey, you may be seated, guys. Happy Fourth of July weekend, and uh, I don't know, it is kind of amazing, isn't it? Like, uh, is it in four years, is it 2026, when it'll be our, is it the sesquicentennial, is that a word? 250 anniversary of our nation, some of you are like, it's mm, a pretty big word, Sean. I don't know. I think that's right. I mean, that's a quarter of a millennium. That's kind of cool, right? That ought to be something. So anyway, happy 4th of July, and uh, so glad that you guys are here today. You know, we most of us should not take put too much stock in dreams, right? We all know, right, that dreams are just kind of really weird and wonky. They have maybe 10% reality and 90% weirdness. You know, sometimes you guys pop up in my dreams from time to time, and I'm not ever going to tell you what in the world kind of crazy things in my mind because I don't even understand it. But have you ever had the kind of dream where, you know, maybe you're in danger, you're trying to do something, and you can't make your legs work, like you can't get up and physically move, or just, you know, you can't accomplish what you're trying to do. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Did you kind of have that? All right. And I'm assuming that our body's in bed, and like whatever's going on, we're trying to run from the bear or the bad guy, and our body knows, like, yeah, you're not moving in bed very well, bud, and I just, you know, we can't get there, and it's frustrating. It's almost like you're trying to run through quicksand or mud or whatever, and we shouldn't make too much about that as a dream. However, sometimes our life is like that, is it not? Sometimes we're like, we just kind of go through the grind and the slog. It's like running through mud. It's like running through quicksand. And it's not so much that things are bad, if you will, but it's just like, it's just, we are kind of just going through, and whether it's the monotony or the challenge or the struggles, whatever, and it's all that. So I have a very technical title this morning. It's just, just like, you know, how do you, how do you work through, how do you live through the slog, the just the the grind of life, the challenges of that, and how do we walk through that? We're going to see this morning in a passage of Scripture that we, Jesus is there. He's in the upper room with His disciples. It's the night when He gets betrayed. It's the night when He is arrested. It's the night before He is uh, not only on trial and all of that, but that He dies and is crucified for our sins. This is a big deal. And there's five things in here I want us to see as, as we walk through just the betrayal and as He's there with, the, with His uh, apostles in that upper room. Five things that kind of to help us as we go through the slog and the, the grind of life. These are not five little steps to be happy or to kind of work through it. These are five ways to think about the world around us. Sometimes when we go through those things, we lose perspective. We don't, we kind of, we lose perspective of life. I don't know if you go through things sometimes and just like, like you might have one issue of your life that colors and bleeds over all other areas. You know, in driving, they can talk about like tunnel vision. You know, new drivers are just, they're just kind of white knuckled. Well, they ought to be white knuckled, right? Sometimes I've had a couple of my kids like, you ought to be more afraid right now than you are. You're like, I want you to have a little bit of fear of God in you as you're learning to drive. This is a big deal. But sometimes, somewhere along the way, usually they just, you know, you, you only kind of see what's in front of you and you can't see the big picture. And sometimes we do that in life. We get so focused in, in going through that that we miss the bigger view. So I want this morning to be kind of like five things to help us to 
see the bigger picture of what's going on when we're just in the middle of the slog and that kind of thing. So read with me if you would. Give me a second to get my glasses out. But look at John chapter 13. And I want to read, uh, I don't know what verse I want to read. Give me a second. I'll tell you as soon as I can see it. Yeah, it'd even help if I'm on the right page. I didn't even get the page right. There we go. So I want you to read John 13. Read with me in verse 21 and following. The Bible says this. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Last week, he had just washed the disciples' feet, and he had just started talking about the betrayal, that there would be one among them that would betray him. And he's troubled in his heart. And he testified in verse 21, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. I mean, get the picture. He's sitting around the table. There's 12 disciples, 12 apostles, and him. And he says, one of you is going to turn around and is going to absolutely betray me. He goes on, he says, or the Bible says this, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Don't miss this. We know the backstory. None of us would ever name our kid Judas, right? That's not something we're ever going to... I don't think any of the, you know, having babies in the future or grandparents are like, hey, Judas is a good name. You ought to name your kid. Benedict Arnold is not going to be one. Judas is not going to be one. Those two names like off the board completely in our culture. They did not know. Judas didn't on the outside look like a betrayer. They couldn't figure it out. They thought everything was good among everybody. We know the end of the story, but they looked around and they're like, I don't know who you're talking about. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved, that would have been John, the author of this, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. Get the picture. They weren't sitting around the dining room table in chairs. They're, they're, think of a, an Asian kind of table, maybe like the old traditional tables in Japan where it would be low to the ground and people would kind of lay down on a pillow. And we look at that and we're like, why would you eat that way? That's odd, but that was customary. And so it would be, if you're laying on your elbow and kind of, you know, eating from the table, you really can't turn around and talk to this guy because you'd be like in bed shifting around. So John is there in front of Jesus. And so Jesus, at Jesus' side, and Peter in verse 24 motioned to him. He's across the table or some other place. He kind of tells John, he says, ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, John, leaning back into Jesus, against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? I don't know if Peter kind of gave him a head nod, kind of like, hey, you need to ask a little more. So John kind of, oh, who are you talking about? This wasn't heard by everybody. Peter and John kind of had a thing going between the two of them. And here's what Jesus says. It's he, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, like picture, you know, little bread and a little, uh, you know, oil and vinegar or whatever your thing is, a little dressing. And he said, so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. That's wild. We'll talk briefly about that in a minute. Satan metaphysically entered into Judas. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Gave him a command. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. 
or that he should give him something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Most people didn't hear the whole code between it's who I'm giving the morsel to. John heard it, but at that point, he's the only one who knew. They heard that Jesus give a command, but they didn't all eyes look at Judas like, oh my goodness, you're the betrayer. They had no idea. Five things. When you're kind of going through life and the slog and the grind or whatever, five things that you need to understand what's going on around you. Number one, God is always at work redeeming people in this world. God is always at work redeeming people around you in your life, in the world around you. Sometimes when we're going through the slog, sometimes when we're going through the grind, we're like, is there God really doing anything in my life? Is God really doing anything in my family? Is God really doing anything in our church? Like it's just, you know, you kind of, you go through that, you get up, rinse, repeat, go to work, whatever. It's not that things are bad. It's not things that are awful. It's not things that you've got something you're really trying to work through, a battle you're having to fight through, but sometimes things are okay. But you just, through the daily grind and the challenges of life, we get like that. Whether you're a mom at home, whether you're going to work, and it's just like, oh, here we go again. You know, same old, same old, all of that. Something we need to realize, that we get into that mindset, but God never gets into that mindset. The disciples were just following Jesus. They really were kind of clueless. But God is always at work. When you read the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, there's thousands of years, and we turn page after page about crazy story and God doing stuff, and after story after story after story. But we miss the years of life going on in between things. Amazing thing, you know, about 3 B.C., God sent angels to speak in this world to recognize it, announce that Jesus was coming. And then really nothing's going on for about 30 years. 30 years. And then finally, Jesus steps up and gets baptized, and he starts doing miracles. So for 30 years, the people who were trying to follow God and honor him were just like, we're supposed to do this, we want to do this, but like, there's nothing really big going on in our life, God. What's happening? Make no mistake, when we're in that season of life, we need to be careful that we don't think that somehow God is silent, somehow that God is just not working, somehow this is not the right thing or the right situation. Sometimes we even take that perspective and we're like, oh, God's not working in my family or my relationship. I need to blow this up or my church or work or I need to shift and do something differently. And God's like, no, I'm at work in ways you don't see. The disciples were clueless. They didn't know Jesus. They were right on the cusp of seeing the greatest miracle in all of history, right on the cusp of seeing the greatest act of love, right on the cusp of seeing God do something amazing that we for thousands of years now look back and wish that we could experience and see firsthand and we just read about it. Oh, we experience it firsthand through the Holy Spirit in our life, but they didn't get it. You and I need to realize, folks, that God is at work in your family, in the lives of the people around you, and in your community, in your workplace, in the crazy messed up world around us, that God is always at work. Be careful that you don't read your life back into God's life. Instead, read what God is doing into your world. Because sometimes you and I are just making it all about the grind and the stuff, and God's not cluing us in on what He wants to do, but He kind of would like us to do something, but we just aren't asking, and we're not looking. And God's like, yeah, I guess I'm going to do it anyway without you. And sometimes it's actually a reflection of our own spiritual life 
more than it is really God. So that's the first thing. God is always, 100%, always at work around us, whether we see it or not. And our job is to stay attuned and to be a part of what God is up to. Second thing I want you to recognize, not only is God always at work redeeming the world around us, but there's an enemy. Satan is always at work as well, resisting what God wants to do, but Jesus is in charge of him. We didn't talk about this much last week in the first part of uh, John 13, but you know it's amazing as we go through John and read the Gospels at how often Satan and the devil and the enemy of God is mentioned. And it's really not a focus so much in Scripture, but it's kind of like always a reminder. The Bible is all about Jesus, and we should spend more time worshiping and knowing Him, but we need to be reminded there is an enemy who's actively opposing the things of God. But in, in John chapter 13, we're told that during the supper, so Jesus is there with His apostles, that during that time when the devil had already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. You see, the enemy is at work. He found a mark inside the inner circle of Jesus and put that thought that was Satan's own thought and put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. You see, the enemy is always at work to undermine the salvation of people's souls. He's always at work to undermine the glory of God in the world around us. And sometimes he puts thoughts into people's brains, into their heart, that are not their own. We've talked a little bit about this before. There's only four sources of thoughts that enter into your brain. There's only four possible sources. Either somebody else in the world around you told you this, hey, you look great today. There's a thought. Oh, I look great. Now, you can choose to believe it or not, but somebody else told you something and you're listening to, right? You come up with it yourself out of the blue. God put it in your heart or the enemy put it in your heart. There's four sources. God will never put anything in your heart that's against His Word, that's sinful, that's against God and His glory. So God would have never put into Satan or to Judas's heart to, to betray Jesus. So that one's not of God. What we're just hearing is it really wasn't Judas's idea initially. And somebody else in the world didn't tell him to do it, so it was just the enemy of God in his heart. And Judas's responsibility is the same that your responsibility and mine is. Whenever a thought is in our brain, we don't need to lose sleep so much about, oh, where did this come from and all of that. We need to weigh it. Is this of God or not? If it's not of God, then we reject it whether the enemy put it there or not. You see, we're responsible for that thought when it enters into our brain. You and I can't fully keep those thoughts from us. I mean, have you ever wondered, like, your brain can go a million miles an hour and all of that? For most of us, it depends on how much caffeine we've had or whether or not we've had a lot of sugar that day or carbs or whatever, you know, wound up. And our brains, sometimes we're overtired. We think that we're a little more, you know, up to speed. No, you're just are like that kid that's bouncing off the walls before they finally get tired and crash. It's not sinful to have that wrong thought into your brain, whether it's yours or the enemy's or wherever. But what you do with that thought is what matters. And your job and my job is to take responsibility and to weigh those thoughts and to reject them when they don't line up with God and His Word. And Judas didn't do that. Consequently, he kind of thought, that's a good thought. 
I can get some money out of this deal. I'm going to betray Jesus because I want more money than I care about Jesus and his redemption. And he opened himself up to, in the end, to be occupied, not possessed, but to be occupied by Satan himself. The other apostles didn't see it. I'm not sure Judas himself realized that he was metaphysically being occupied by the enemy of God, but he was. By the way, when you and I entertain thoughts and we accept those and take them as our own and sin and disobey God, we give more and more opportunity for the enemy to work in our life and lead us even further and further down that road. When you wake up one day and realize you have kind of in your wake a path of destruction of relationships and damaged all of those, you need to step back and say, wait a minute, even though I thought I've been doing right, kind of all the evidence shows there's some problems here and i got to own that. And Judas finally did recognize that later before it's too late. So the big picture is you need to realize is that when you're going through this slog and this grind of life, to be careful. Because the enemy God is always working against you. And sometimes you're going through the grind because the enemy of God is truly resisting some things that you're trying to accomplish, some things that you're praying about and working toward. And sometimes it is a fight. It's a fight of attrition and just a long, drawn-out kind of war. Have you noticed how the media has neglected the war in Ukraine over the last few weeks? I assure you that is still front-page news for all the people there. And sometimes those things and those slogs and those battles and those grinds go on and on and on, and we lose interest and focus. Sometimes the enemy is genuinely working. So God is always at work. There's an enemy of God resisting. And when you and I are truly trying to pursue God in the middle of it, it's not necessarily that we're doing wrong. It's not necessarily that we're missing the boat or need a change of this or that. Sometimes the enemy of God is just really working and resisting. And our job is to continue on and to stay faithful in the middle of what God's called us to. That's the second lesson. Third lesson is God is always working around us to bring glory to himself. Always working around Look what the Bible says in verse 31. When he had gone out, when Judas had left, finally they were down to those that were genuinely followers of Christ. Judas was not a genuine follower of Jesus. He looked like he was. He was very just as religious and as faithful on the outside as everybody else. But on the inside, he wasn't. He was not saved. He was not a follower of Jesus. And when he had finally gone out, in verse 31, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Break all of that down. God is all about his glory and revealing who he is. Jesus said in essence, now God is glorified. Now I'm glorified. You see, that was the trap was finally sprung. That line had been crossed. Jesus was in control and in charge of the enemy of God and said, you go and do what you're doing and you do it quickly. You do not have permission to delay. You do what you're going to do. You're responsible for this, but you do it quickly. I'm giving you the parameters and allowing you to do this, but I am putting you in a box and you need to do it quickly. And even though the, Jesus is in charge, the enemy is, is fighting actively, Jesus is in charge and the enemy always plays into God's hand and it always works out for God's glory. You see, you and I go through the mundane of life and the challenges of life, and we live our life 
And sometimes we really do get addicted to excitement and adrenaline and all of this. And life mostly for the most part is 90% average and normal and ho-hum and 10% woo, you know. It's just it's the way it is. It's just that way. And for a lot of it, it's really good. Many of you are in law enforcement, some of you firefighters. I don't know how you roll, but my hunches is your spouse, when you come home, how was work? Eh, it's pretty boring and normal. They're probably glad. They like boring and normal. They like not having the crazy and the, you know, whatever off the wall. And I'm, we ought to be grateful for that. But in the middle of that, God is glorifying himself always in ways that we don't see and fully understand. You see, Jesus says, I'm now glorified because what he's talking about is the cross that he's about to go through. The trap has been not only set, but is sprung. It is happening. And I'm going to be glorified. And my Father is going to be glorified by hanging on the cross. Question to you. Why does the cross of Jesus Christ bring such glory to God? The answer, or part of the answer is, is because God in no way, shape, or form owed us anything. There's no glory when your company that you work for pays you based on the hours that you agreed to work for them and the salary structure you work for them. You don't go home and say, oh, my company is glorious. Not at all. You might at the end of the year, when they give you a big fat bonus that you really were not expecting that they've never done before, you might go home and say, woohoo, isn't this a great company? That is glorious. When you and I experience something above and beyond the call of, you know, and see something amazing, that's what gets our attention. God did the most glorious thing ever because He did not owe a single thing to you or me. He did not have to die for our sins. He would have been completely justified to let you and I rot in hell for all of eternity, experiencing no blessing, no happiness, no joy, no relief, nothing but pain and anguish, separated from God for forever. He would have been completely justified in that and completely glorious in that. But He did the unthinkable. He Himself died in our place to sacrifice himself for your sin and my sin and is the most glorious act in the world. God's glory is, no, is revealed the most through the cross and the, the empty tomb as he died on the cross for our sins and then overcame that sin. That is the most glorious act that God could ever do. It's not in his creation where his glory is most seen. Oh, that's glorious, but that doesn't compare to what he did for us on the cross. Oh, God is glorious when He shows up in your life and does some cool things and work things out, and we're just like, whoo, thank you, God, and we get little glimpses of it. But that, those don't compare to what He did for you 2,000 years ago. Don't ever forget that in the middle of our challenges and difficulties and just going through life, that there is a glorious God who's revealed Himself, and we should be in awe of that and worship Him in our life. Fourth thing that we should do. Even when we're going through the slog and the challenges of life, our focus should be in loving others. Look at what verse 36 says. Oh, no, no, no. Let me back up. I missed a couple of verses. So in verse 33, Little children, yet a little while, and I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, 
that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is a new commandment. You see, they already knew the command that they were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind, and strength. They knew that one. They did not know that they were to love one another just the same way that they were about to see Jesus love them, the same way that they just saw Jesus serve them, and the way they were about to see Jesus die on the cross. Jesus said, I know you're going through some challenges. You're going to go through some stuff after this. I want you to keep your focus. When you and I are going through the challenges and the slog and the grind through life, it's easy to just kind of go through life and be distracted and diffused. And, and Jesus says, hey, gang, get focused. Love one another. Love God. They knew that. And love each other. Serve one another. And by the way, this is the way the world's going to know that you're followers of me. They're not going to know that you're followers of me because the things you stand against are post, you know, on social media and the, what all kinds of things that we do. To be honest with you, he even told us they're not going to know that you love one another because of all the incredible, that you're my followers because of all the incredible service projects you do. The world will notice when you do the unthinkable and you live like I do, when you just have a deep, an abiding commitment in your life to care for, look after, serve, and love each other. That's not that we're to be so inward focused just as a church we don't care about anybody else. We know that we're to love our community as well, but we're also to love our church. And Jesus said that should be the mark. Keep your focus there. Folks, that takes time. I don't have time this morning to explain, to unpack that. But to have that kind of love for one another, it takes time developing those relationships to get to know people, to be able to have that kind of love and that kind of connection. That's why church is not about a worship service. We do this every week to, as an opportunity to glorify God, to connect with people, and to create those avenues of love with one another and service for our, our world around us. But he says, give ourselves, give of yourself to demonstrate that love. Fifth and final thing, in verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? I love Peter. He's incredible. Where are you going? Like, what are you talking about? I can't follow you. I don't like this. I want to be where you are. Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me. Keyword, now. You can follow me, just not yet. But you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? Isn't he like a kid? Jesus just called them little children. <laughs> like, you can't come. Why? Well, you just can't come. Why? You know, just like the little kids do. Why? Why? Why can't I come? Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. They knew that the world was upended and that Jesus' life was about to be taken. They thought it was a political thing, and they knew that his life was at risk, and Peter's like, I'll stand up and fight for you. I'll lay my life for you. I'll go wherever you go. There's no place you can go on that I can't go. And Jesus answered them, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Here's fifth life lesson, way of viewing the world around you. When you and I are just going through life and all of the grind and all of it, is we need to be careful not to overestimate our own spiritual vitality. Be careful. 
Sometimes we're going through the grind and the slog, and sometimes we're going through it, and we're like, oh, I'm good, everything's good, I'm living as I ought to. I mean, I haven't robbed any stores lately. I'm not, you know, doing crazy stuff. I'm giving it all for Jesus. And Jesus is kind of like, really? That's where you think you are? Yeah, I got news for you, buddy. You're a little self-deluded. You really don't know where you are spiritually. You think you're going to, so tough, you're going to lay your life down for me? You think all's good and you're really devoted to me? Yeah, the rooster's going to crow three times. Not going to crow three times till you have denied even knowing me, let alone laying your life down for me. Sometimes when we're going through the grind in life, sometimes the challenge is, the, the reality is, is that we're not spiritually living for Jesus as much as we think we are. And it may seem like God's not working in our life and not involved in our life, and sometimes it's because we really are not as focused into that as we ought to be. So be careful. Once again, that you don't overestimate your spiritual life. When you and I go through those grinds, we need to more and more before Jesus on our face, God, today I want to live for your glory. God, today I want to live for you. God, where, where am I? Help me to keep growing. Help me to keep focused. You. It's, in those, it's in that strain of life when it's not some... Let me say it this way. When there's problems arising, you know you've got nothing but God. God, help me. And you're praying and you're really focused and you're really sharp and you're on a... But when you don't have those things going on in your life and just everything's okay, you and I get tempted to just kind of coast and just, just, hey, I'm just going through life. Everything's good. And be careful because that's when you trip up. And that's when you're, you need to redouble and say, God, I know there's nothing really big. God, thank you for what's going on in my life. God, where are you working? Where are you trying to lead people to me, to, that, to you that I need to be a part of? God, where's the enemy actually working right now? And I don't see it, and I don't have a clue. God, I want to live today for your glory, and I want to grow in the middle of this season of, of life. See, I don't know about you, but in my life, that's the challenges. Life is, you know, there's big hills to climb and steep, hard things, and then there's some exciting, just incredible things, and, and there's a lot of plateaus in that. But our spiritual life, if you were to graph it, shouldn't look like an EKG, you know, whoop, whoop, up and down. It should be at least maintaining, if not increasing, if you could kind of graph it. And that's the challenge for us today. So I don't know where you are in this world. The enemy of God, honestly, one of his key strategies is to keep you and I happy. It's kind of like what we want to do as parents with a baby, right? Just don't upset the kid. I'm, I'm guessing as we become grandparents, like I'm a, I'm a picker and a tease and play, I love to wind up a little bit. I'm careful. I behave myself for the most part at church, but even some of you are like, Sean, you be careful. I know. My kids are going to be like, don't wind the kid up, Dad. <laughs> like, just keep them quiet and happy and comfortable. Isn't that our strategy? Keep, change their diaper, feed them, make them happy. The enemy of God is comfortable. He, his strategy is to keep you comfortable and happy and distracted. And yet God says, no, I got some other stuff I want to do. Be careful. You and I would do well to get rid of that 
code out of our operating system that life should just be all about our happiness. That's when we think we're just not doing well in life because it's a grind and like, this should be better than this. I ought to be happier than I am. No, sometimes just no. Your goal of happiness is really not a thing that God's doing. It's a thing that our culture tells you. I just want you to be happy. You ought to be happy. You ought to be happy, 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 happy. Folks, there's probably 30 other emotions that God gave us and want us to, wants us to experience beyond just happiness. And we have to let go of those things. So pursue God wherever you are in that life. And I don't know what God has spoken in your heart this morning, but I want to challenge you to take a second and respond to what He's been speaking into your heart today. And maybe you've been going through the grind and neglecting Jesus, trying to just coasting. If so, take this as an opportunity to say, God, I recognize that. I've been neglecting you. I've been kind of coasting in life and ignoring it. Take this as an opportunity to just kind of reset the button, restart, reboot the computer, whatever your way of thinking is, to say, Jesus, I want my life to count for you. Jesus, I know that you're at work around me. Forgive me for thinking somehow that you're not. Forgive me for thinking that you're, you only do work that I see. Or feeling like you ought to only be doing stuff that I see. Forgive me of that, God. I just, I want to be your disciple who follows you regardless of what I see in my life. So take that opportunity this morning.